Hello, this is your host, Michelle, and welcome to today's episode of the Happy Pelvis Podcast, a podcast all about bridging the gaps in pelvic health care and bringing awareness to the hurdles individuals face as a result of living with persistent pelvic pain. To keep up to date with what's coming up, be sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Happy Pelvis. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get right into it. Welcome to a new episode of the Happy Pelvis Podcast. We have hit the end of September 2022. Where did the summer go? (laughs) It is cooling down a little bit here in southern Ontario. And um, one of September's many awareness months um, that is near and dear to my heart because it's something I personally struggle with, is interstitial cystitis, uh, also known as bladder pain syndrome. Um, On today's episode, I'll be chatting with Dr. Dean Tripp. Uh, He and I discuss mental health, resiliency, and the impact of chronic pelvic pain associated with IC and bladder pain syndrome. This conversation was recorded earlier this year But uh, due to my own health obstacles, I haven't had the opportunity to share it with the community until now. So in true Michelle fashion, I scrambled to get this out on the eve of September 29th to ensure it hit the ridiculous imaginary September deadline I had in place for myself. (sighs) Anywho, I do hope you enjoy this episode and uh, you take away some valuable points that Dr. Uh, Tripp and I touch upon. We do talk about suicide in this episode, which I know can be very distressing. So if you need resources or support, please go to talksuicide.ca or For 24-hour free counseling in Canada, the number is 1-833-456-4566. Dr. Dean Tripp completed his PhD in clinical psychology at Dalhousie University. He joined the Department of Psychology at Queen's University shortly afterward, and has been cross-appointed with the Departments of Anesthesiology and Urology. He teaches courses in health psychology, interpersonal therapy, and pain. He has published over 50 peer-reviewed research papers and chapters examining community chronic pain experiences and depression, as well as a focus on chronic prostatitis and painful bladder syndrome and interstitial cystitis. His research and clinical interests have always focused on health, stress, and interpersonal adjustment. Without further ado, welcome Dr. Dean Tripp. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, Before I jump in, please feel free to introduce yourself to the Happy Pelvis community. Sure. 
Well, as you mentioned, my name is Dean Tripp. I'm a full professor uh, in the departments of psychology, anesthesia, and neurology at Queen's University. Um, I've been, I'm a Nova Scotia boy and, and got uh, uh, transported up here for work 20 years ago and been happy ever since at Queen's. So I enjoy that part of, um, of Ontario for sure. Uh, you know, my research has long been interested in how people manage difficult situations. Um, and most of those difficult situations for me uh, come from health. So I've been interested in pain for a long, long time, uh, going back to my early work with Dr. Michael Sullivan at Dalhousie University, um, and have followed through on, you know, understanding how people try to live or manage difficult life situations. And, and most times the, the diseases and disease processes that we've been studying have a chronic pain component to it. Um, in regards to interstitial cystitis, uh, bladder pain syndrome, uh, I've been working closely with uh, Dr. Nickel and the group of urologists here uh, well over the past, I guess, 14 years. Uh, you know, I have to guess a year off or around there. Um, and our group has been involved with uh, international work, um, looking at not just the sort of, um, can I say, uh, profiling of, of the disease and its impact uh, on patients and families, um, but also, you know, trying to understand some of the predictors and hotspots um, for patients in this condition, because it is chronic uh, for many, many patients, and it is extremely painful for many patients. So in some sense, it, it, it is kind of a culmination of various interests that I'm uh, kind of engaged in, but uh, that's where we've been for the last mm, decade and a bit. Um as a chronic pain patient myself, I know that chronic pain and mental health are unarguably connected. Um, I've had very low lows, I've had very high highs, um, and it's all related to my chronic pain cycle that um, I've lived with most of my life. Um, could you explain the cycle a little bit to the viewers? Um, and what different type of management um, models would work in, um, in helping this chronic pain cycle? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I'll take it from a perspective of, let's say you were a, um, a patient of mine and we were meeting for the first time. And, you know, I was going to tell you a little bit about, you know, uh, what I do and, and how, do I, how do I understand this? And I think that's probably how I'd like to start. You know, I always say, you know, for in chronic pain, you know, most of the people that we see haven't had that pain their entire life. So they've start out in life and, you know, they don't have a chronic painful condition or, or, you know, any type of major disease process or illnesses or injuries for that matter. And then they most often develop symptoms in some way or another. Sometimes the onset is acute. And it, you know, is quite you know, you know, just kind of destables everything for the individual. As you can imagine, in acute pain, that's what happens. You have to try to take control of that pain. And we're taught, you know, use medicine and kind of get proactive on that. And then we'll go away and you'll be better. But what happens in that attempt uh, for people who that doesn't work, that pain stays, they enter into what I call a subacute phase, which is kind of like, outside of acute, but you know, so it's longer than acute, but it's not quite chronic. 
And in that phase as well, then there's a lot of kind of distress. There's a lot of like, well, what's happening? Uh, if your diagnosis isn't um, accurate or symptoms seem to be kind of random, um, that can also be really scary. Um, and, and that process, you know, I call it destabilizing for everybody around, around the patient and the person impacted their family. Everyone kind of feels it then because you're moving from acute to subacute kind of concerns. And then from subacute concerns, I think we move to this, this area called chronic. And the chronic illness, where, where the pain is now chronic, can be really different for a lot of people. Like for some people, chronic pain can mean that it's constantly on. So you, you have, let's say your pain is from zero to 10 and 10 is the worst pain you've ever had in your life. A lot of patients I, I would see would say, look, my pain is constantly on and it's around like a six. And I'd be like, oh, that sounds difficult to manage. And they would go, yeah. And they, and they would say, but sometimes it goes to 10. And then sometimes it's like two, but mostly every day it, it's on, like it, it's bad. So I have some good days and then I have some terrible days. And, but most days I'm, I'm battling this. And that, that's one representation of how chronic pain can impact you. Um, other people have it uh, worse in regards to intensity and they have nine out of nine, nine out of 10, sorry, all the time. And some will have two out of 10 with spikes up to eight out of 10 or, or even 10 out of 10, but mostly they're okay. They still have a lower level of pain. So the profile is what I try to talk to with patients as we come in and we try to understand that profile for them, how it impacts their life and what they're like. And, and I think sometimes in talking about, you know, the amount of different exposure that people have in their condition, um, even if you have the same diagnosis is important because they can get a sense of the other people are there working through this as well. So when I talk about chronic pain, really I, I come at it from a model of three areas. There's your biology, there's your psychology, and then there's the social impact of it. And, those, and we can also bring in cultural aspects as well to be sensitive in those areas because those can be very important also. But when we think about those three areas and four areas, really, I'd like to say now, I think, you know, understanding the biology of what pain is, is really important in terms of how can I have chronic pain? What the heck is that? And chronic pain to me is like, you know, uh, you're in a classroom and the alarm goes off, like the fire alarm goes off. And, you know, you can manage that for, if you know, there's no fire, you can manage that for a, a minute, but it gets annoying after a minute. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if it continues to go on after five minutes and your teacher is trying to teach to you and yelling above the alarm that's going off, it's like, okay, I can't hear you. I'm trying to focus. Now I'm getting upset. And now I still have this pain or this signal. And that's kind of how I think about chronic pain. It's like, you know, in, in chronic pain, you may not be having new tissue damage, you may not be having new insults to your body, but that doesn't mean that the pain you're having is not real. And it doesn't mean that it's impacting your psychology and your social world as well. Mm -hmm. So now that's a very long winded kind of, you know, song and dance on, on pain, how I think about it, but that's, that's the basics. So when you say by a lot, so there was biological, there was psychological and there was social. So biological mm -hmm. means disease of some sort. So Usually. 
uh, hunter's lesions, for example, if right. we're talking about IC, um, that yeah. would be trying to find a medical solution to try to ease those lesions to help with pain, correct? Correct. Yep. And a psycho approach would be the mental health and the psychological aspects of how you manage and cope with the pain, I would but say. Also but what, also what pain does to you, because pain is, if you look at the biology of pain and the psychology of pain, what's really fascinating is that the pain signaling that you have in your nervous system runs along some of the nervous tracts that are also highly associated with emotion. So this, this kind of like, you know, that's why we, when we talk about pain and we talk about pain empathy, like if you see someone else in pain, you actually have a reaction in your body that mimics and in your brain that mimics the pain profile of that person having the pain, although you're not having pain and you're watching them. So how's that possible? Mm-hmm. So we, our bodies are set up to understand for survival's instinct that that pain is a warning it's it's something to pay attention to it's a signal right so we're primed to to kind of see that and be alarmed by it some people have lower pain tolerances and some people have really high pain tolerances but for average person you know we're kind of we're, we're primed biologically to experience pain that's why we have some overlap in the way our our biology interacts with pain mm-hmm. so when i talk about the psychological Uh, nature of pain i'm not just saying you know hey like uh, one of my patients one time said you just think i'm crazy and i said no i don't i think that pain makes people stressed it just stresses you and the more you're stressed the more biologically you're going to feel worse because if i don't have any chronic pain and you take me somewhere we can't do this experiment really but if you took me somewhere and stressed me and kept me stressed and didn't let me sleep and didn't let me eat right and didn't let me talk, you know, and didn't have any happiness. In in two days, I'm gonna be miserable. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna be miserable. Imagine if you did that to me for three months. So yeah. this is this is what I talk about. It's like these are normal reactions, but pain drives this because it does so other so many things to you biologically and behaviorally. Um this really resonates with me um, because I've dealt with chronic pain since childhood. I was told I had vulvodynia and issues um, with pelvic pain, but they told me there was no help, no answers. Um, This was over 15 years ago now. Um, And when I look back on my school years and my frustration when it came to Mm. learning, um, I I look back and I can see now how much my pain impacted me. I would get overwhelmed so easily. And like my parents, they'd be like, well, it's okay. Like they'd, they would always be like, what yeah. set you off? And I wouldn't really understand. And it was just me trying to push my pain down because when I was sitting in class and I was sitting at home doing homework, I had pain. Yeah. And I do feel that that played a role in me becoming very um, mentally overwhelmed and not retaining the education that I could have if I wasn't suffering from 100%, 100%. It's like, I mean, you know, like you said, if if you're trying to learn something and you have like someone shouting in your ear, you know, or an alarm going off, it's going to, you're going to be distracted by that. So there's, you know, that's why there's in, in terms of trying to manage that, it's like, you want to manage it three ways. 
right? So, you want to manage pain biologically, right? And that could be medicines that might help, mm -hmm. medicines that could reduce symptomatology of the pain. Sometimes procedures might help if yeah. they're, you know, if they're effective. Um, so that would be biological. Then there's also there's there's different types of herbal medicines that now have some evidence to say that they can be useful. Yeah. So and again, I, I'm a big believer in making sure that there's medicine uh, and evidence to support what we're using, whether we call it herbal or not, but I'll call them all medicines. But mm -hmm. I think making sure there's evidence that they're supportable, uh, that's always important for me. And then you think about the psychological side of it. Like, so there's biological medicines and treatments, which can, could, could include manipulations, massages, therapies. You know, we know that there's uh, pelvic uh, release uh, therapies now that have been shown to have benefit for patients as well. So that's, a, again, a biological slash physical approach to, to getting better. Then there's a psychological approaches, talking therapies amongst many that we can talk about, and social approaches. Mm -hmm. So I, I think your, your example is a good example of that. That young woman that we're talking about, you know, could have benefited from these types of things in different areas. But again, it's like, it, it's, it's one of these growth areas that we need to be better at in medicine, in treatment for our patients. And that's why I'm happy to be talking to you today about it. And it would sort of branch off into the collaborative approach between healthcare providers, because with somebody who has chronic pelvic pain, be it IBD, be it IC, bladder pain syndrome, um, mm -hmm. there's different specialists and trying to get a good treatment plan where everybody's on the same page and um, putting together this plan with a biopsychosocial approach. Yeah. And I think there are places in, in Canada, there are places in the United States around the world where multi multidisciplinary uh, treatment teams are, you know, mostly in tertiary care hospitals, um, yeah. you know, and, and larger centers usually, uh, and these teams do bring these aspects to bear on patient care. Um, the, the problem that I see, and I think that a lot of patients experience, is what if I don't live by one? What if I can't get there? What if, I, what if there's none of that in my community? Like, there is a, in my opinion, there is a real lack of psychological treatments in all of medicine, although there are medical clinics that I know that employ psychologists more and more um, to manage some of this, it's still the numbers are too low. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we need to do a better job in that perspective of like getting the word out and the treatment models out 100%. But one of the things that's been fantastic about COVID, if I can think COVID has done anything good, um, is that it has pushed services online. And this has really helped with uh, what I would call the distance factor. You know, like we're having this interview today and, you know, I didn't have to fly somewhere. You didn't have to drive somewhere. And we're able to have this discussion. Um, people are now much more adept, used to using this technology in various different ways. So this has been an interesting outreach uh, exercise in terms of getting mental health treatment and or physical slash mental health treatment for disease. The problem is we still need providers. We still need to connect people with providers. And a big part of that is uh, like you were suggesting earlier, uh, education and kind of availability. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, so pretty much you're saying that the accessibility has 
has increased significantly for people suffering from chronic pain and getting those resources at home so they don't have to go out and find or go to another city but yeah and you know what's what's interesting about that is uh a patient said the other day uh, we were just finishing up a, a big study at the the local hospital here in kingston looking at uh, types of treatment for chronic pain so just general sort of umbrella of chronic pain so all comers could come to this therapy project and you know when we started the project the project was in person, obviously, like you come into the hospital, you go, you know, the usual fare. And a lot of patients were, you know, not a lot of patients, but some patients were limited, obviously, by travel and, and travel, what I call travel fatigue. So if you're sitting in a car for 90 minutes, and then you get to your appointment, and you have to sit down in a room for this, you know, group therapy uh, for another two hours, uh, you know, it's, it becomes very difficult to manage physically because there's tolerance levels, right? So some of the patients who uh, have, I've later talked to have switched out of that and you know, that's been finished, but they, they're now doing follow-up therapies that are uh, virtual. They just love it because they, they are not tapped by the time they get there and they're able to have better discussions and there are limitations to it. It's not, you know, it's not the perfect scenario. But I think there's a great example of how, you know, we need to think outside the box to get people where they are. There's the one last surprise note on that. Another patient said, well, you know what? I don't exercise enough now because part of my exercise was getting, getting my ass, excuse my language, mm-hmm. off, off, of this, off of this chair and in my car and going there. I, you know, that was, a, that was a big task for me. But when I stopped doing that, I felt like I was getting more disabled. So I have to start trying to work in things where now I'm doing more uh, to make up for those three trips a week that I had to make, which were pretty big deals for me. And I, and so that was a clever thing that the patient said. There's like pros and cons, but then from this negative experience, you can pull from that and be like, okay, what did we learn that? Okay. We noticed that our patients really like this. So we should probably have something accessible for them even post COVID um protocols and all of that yeah yeah that's and very we'll see how that changes yeah i think it's changing i think i think we've tapped into something um that can have a real benefit now there was telemedicine before these things were available but not on this level not at, no. not at like this so i'm very hopeful that that can be useful i agree i i i've done um, CBT classes online digitally, actually. And I was like, oh, am I really going to get too much out of this? And I have. Um, so good. Uh, good. <laughs> so anybody good. watching, don't yeah. be afraid of the digital realm because there is still help out there um, within, that's accessible for you. Um, okay, so landing on your latest study last year, the 2021 study, um, that's the biopsychosocial predictors of suicide mm-hmm. risk in patients with interstitial cystitis bladder pain syndrome. And from reading that, I was really taken back because there was a 38%, 38.1% um, pre- prevalence in suicide risk. So bringing it back to the mental health um, and the chronic pain side of it, uh, this was very striking because you and your team also um, compared it to chronic back pain and um, other chronic pain conditions. So chronic back pain was only 19% and the various other chronic pain conditions were only 14%. So 
38, almost nearly 40% was starkingly high. And I'm curious um, from, I read your study, but I'd love for you to share, why do you think this is? Well, there's a couple of kind of caveats with all of this. You know, first of all, it's elevated. There's zero question. That's why in our in our study, if you had a chance to read it, uh, for you use out there that want to read it, um, I, I think we tried to take caution in saying, you know, uh, let's let's ground this. So when I think about the 38%, yeah, it's high. When I look at some of our other recent research looking at inflammatory bowel disease and other diseases that we're investigating, we have similar numbers, mm. right? And the thing about this study is, is a couple of interesting things to hang on to. First of all, this might be elevated slightly uh, because it is out in the community. So this study wasn't done in tertiary care hospitals. It was done online and it was done out in the community in North America. So when we think about what that means, is we never, you know, the advertising for the study was all about health and it was all these different types of things with questions about your mood and so on and so forth in there. Um, so it wasn't like we advertised, hey, here's a suicide study, you know, and, and people, because if you advertise a study like that, this was one part of the study, right? This is, we published on it. This was one aspect of the study. So when we, when we go out and we run a study like this, and this component's really important, but if you were just to run it as a straight up study that wouldn't have some people who are doing fairly well, and you know, if it was really focused on those who had strong suicidal ideation or strong suicidal tendencies, uh, then you, you know, you're in a very different place. You're getting very carved in. So we put it out to the community, but we wonder, and we don't know the answer to this, but we wonder if this study attracted people that were really distressed. Because, you know, if you say a mental health study or you say anything like that, you know, if you're not feeling, you know, a mental health component to it and you're healthy and you're kind of happy in your disease at the moment, you might look at this advertisement for the study and go, oh, I'm not interested. Exactly. So yes, I might, would. Res I, re I really relate to that. I would. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, OK, so perhaps this study, by the nature of what it's looking at, mental health issues and so on and stuff inside of this disease it brings people uh, that, that have concerns, that are distressed, maybe it brings them out a little bit more than it would. And let's say if you, if you had all your patients in your clinic come in and just went one, two, three, four, five, got everybody, like so everyone who comes into clinic, so the more mild, moderate, and the severe, maybe these numbers would not be 40, 38, close to 40. Maybe they'd be 25, maybe they'd be 30. We, we don't know because we have the sample we have. But regardless, regardless, in over like a thousand people that we, you know, we surveyed approximately and then whittled down a little bit as we uh, eliminated some of the subjects or for incomplete data and so on, uh, that still is a big number. And that's the experience of people in the community. So I still say it's, you know, I have a little caution that I'm not. 100% sure that 38 is the number for all people with IC, but I can tell you in our community sample, and this is where people live, the people that tapped into us did express what I would consider an elevation. And I can also tell you the feedback I've had and the promotion on that research, I've got a lot of feedback and a lot of, a lot of communication from physicians who are very worried about this, who see this as alarm, 
and are, are very mindful of how do we move forward. So I think I just want to add that caveat to that number because the number does stir the imagination, that's for sure. It does. But then would it be like there's a correlation between chronic pelvic pain because it has an impact, like there's a... Uh, as somebody who suffers from chronic pelvic pain, um, mm -hmm. there's a very um, intimate emotional factor involved with it, um, be yes. it if it's your bladder, be it if it's your bowels. Um, yeah. Do we think that, that it, it doesn't matter what condition, you're still having pain, you're still having pelvic pain, and that is what's triggering these, these hopeless mental health thoughts that are yes, popping absolutely. up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you mentioned, you know, are your bowels involved? You know, are your, are your, is, is your perineum involved? Is there like, you know, is there something yeah, that's impacting your sex life, your social life, you, you know, your ability to work? I mean, we see this across a variety of abdominal pelvic pains. And like I mentioned earlier, the interstitial cystitis group is one that we're looking at. But also, if we look at groups like inflammatory bowel disease and Crohn's and colitis, we've also published some literature uh, that was spurred on by some of this research from IC that has comparable data, comparable numbers. So, you know, the abdominal pelvic pain syndromes or diseases um, do have a high rate of comorbidity as well. So Dr. Nickel published a paper a couple of years back with me and some other people that looked at that overlap and talked about the comorbidity. So when you're in IC, you may be comorbid with inflammatory bowel disease or IBS. You may have, you know, so there's a lot of crosstalk that happens overlap. in the belly, you know, mm -hmm. so there's, there's this overlap or crosstalk between those organ systems and your nervous system. So it, it is a, a mystery. It is, I wouldn't say a mystery, but I would say it's complicated. So the bottom line is with these types of conditions, we see this type of pain and we see this type of risk. And that's, that's the big thing in this study. It's a risk. It doesn't mean, my study does not mean mm -hmm that if you have interstitial cystitis, you're going to be suicidal. Yeah, That's not what this study means. It means that you're at risk for certain thoughts and, and certain feelings, like you mentioned, hopelessness and certain ways of kind of being engaged by your world, like feeling like you're a burden to other people as a big predictor of having, you know, even thoughts of, you know, being better off dead or having more severe types of thoughts that people have. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's important to point that out, that it doesn't mean you're going to kill yourself. It doesn't mean that you're suicidal at that moment at all. But it, this suicidal risk really is kind of approaching, you know, because we never asked about, did you try to kill yourself? And did you follow this path? And, you know, we didn't go anywhere near that. So but it was, it was from what I took away from the study, and I'm not a professional, but okay. uh, by any means, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah. The study, like, so I wrote down here, the study claims that pain does not independently predict the likelihood of suicide risk. The predictors are being exposure to suicide, insomnia, psychic, hopelessness, and perceived burdensomeness. But all yeah. of these stem from the pain. So that's where my mind, and I'm like, okay, but the pain is what's sending me to that thought. So isn't that the predictor? Like, so that's where as a patient, I'm, I, I would love to hear your side of that. Sure. And the, the fine, here's the way to think about it. Pain in terms of the research project, it's measured as severity. Okay. So what, what the finding basically is, is that 
the extent of the disease or the, the, the pain that they're experiencing at that any time during filling out the survey doesn't independently predict the suicidal ideation. So the way it works, and we've modeled this in other studies, as, as that there's mediators or other variables that will prompt that outcome. So like, you know, that's a, probably a better way to see it. Yes, if we think about, it's so artificial to say pain creates this, uh, because I, I don't think that's phenomenologically true. Pain creates a condition and the condition creates more pain and that more pain then creates a worse condition. And then that worse condition creates another outcome and there's this cycle. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's artificial to just say, oh, pain creates this because pain is involved, like you suggested, with so many factors. And it's, it's really a, a, a give and take relationship. It's circular. It's, it's you know, what we call kind of like, a, I guess, a, for lack of a better term, is it's recurrent and it's circular. Mm -hmm. So one promotes the other, promotes the other, and then that cycles back to promote it. It's like what we call a recursive kind of relationship. So I hope that explains what we mean by pain doesn't do it yeah. by itself, but it sure is one heck of a problem because like, you're right, that's the foundation from this whole condition. Um, sorry, I just had an idea popped into my head. Um, when you're looking at these studies, there's like you said, there's so many variables and everybody's experiences are different. So yes. you have to narrow it down and break it down. Um, yes. The one thing I have written down here, um, is I wanted to know was the length of time that the patients um, have lived with pelvic pain or IBD, IC, bladder pain syndrome, um, was that involved in the findings at all? Um, was that something that you looked at? I can't, for that study, I can say that no, it wasn't predictive of kind of like these end outcomes. And we've looked at you know, extent of disease or, you know, what, what, I don't know if I have the right language for it, but, you know, extent of disease is what I would usually refer to technically as how long have you been diagnosed? The reporting on that sometime is, is suspect because people can have symptoms long before they get diagnosed. And the diagnosis process is, as you know, is not straightforward in many conditions of interstitial cystitis. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a diagnosis of exclusion Absolutely. You know, of going mm -hmm. through these other sorts of, I won't call them false starts, but you have to eliminate these other processes. You have to go through that. Yeah. 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 So it could be years, uh, years and years. And if you're, if the disease process is relatively mild uh, compared to other people, then that could extend the time out that you're diagnosed, you know, and misdiagnosed. And, and sometimes I've heard patients say, I was misdiagnosed three times. You know, over the course of four years, I finally got this diagnosis and it, and, and then it started to make sense. And some of the treatments were then more helpful. Um, you know, so there's such a wide range of experiences of what patients present with and what they're, because you make a really good point. When you look at research and you look at what's published, the, the, the statistics and the way that you approach that science is you're producing the average response. You're, you're predicting the response based on like, you know, a thousand people. So it's not so much the average response, but you're, that cumulative response of people and where the signals are in the data. So that's really important to remember because there will be some people in our survey of a thousand people 
you know, that had very, very low symptoms uh, mm -hmm. of everything. There'll be other people who had like high on this, low on that, high on this, a little low on that. And then there'll be other people who are high, high, high. And then, you know, someone, again, just that middle ground of people. So when you're looking at science and you read something like uh, the paper we put out, we try to make sure that people understand that it's, it's not, it doesn't mean that's you. It means that in this group of people that we, they provided their information to us from what they told us, we're able to say, these are predictors, these statistical associations add up. But that doesn't mean that that's the same way for everybody in that thousand people group. So that's really important that you have to not paint yourself in your situation with a, a, a brush based on some of this science because you can be very different. You could be worse, you could be the same, or you could be much less. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense um, because there's, there's limitations to everything, any research, and you have to start somewhere. Um, yeah. Do you think that you, is this a direction that you and your team would be researching further within the coming years? Is this something that, you, that interests you to focus on a little bit more? Well, I think at this stage, what we're really concerned about is, is kind of how what we've been talking about gets incorporated into practice. So, you know, at some point in your research career, you start saying, look, I've been researching and researching and researching and, and putting these alarms out. When are we going to do something about it? Mm -hmm. And I think what we're trying to do now is we're very active in trying to communicate our results. We're very active. Um, within the organ professional organizations that we belong to. We're active as, as physicians and urologists who are trying to kind of pay attention to this and, and make clinic adjustments, like on screening, uh, you know, being understanding, talking more to your patients, having more uh, support staff available for patient visits. Um, you know, I, I think I've been very lucky to work with some very um, informed and, and very caring uh, professionals in the health field that that are on on page with this. How do we screen? How do we measure for it? You know, what do we do when this happens? Like, what's our protocol to kind of help this patient get resources? So that's what we're trying to do now is try to make a difference. But uh, in terms of where we're going next, we have been talking about uh, future projects, but um, we don't have anything that we've landed on at the moment. Okay, well, I'll keep an eye out <laughs> in the future. For sure. That actually answers my next question. I was going to ask her, like, what are some good steps that practitioners um, and doctors um, could do to help um, IC and bladder pain syndrome patients? Um, and the one point that you did say is having that support within that clinic um, is, is crucial. Instead of saying, oh, I'm going to send you to this uh, psychotherapy clinic here or something having in one spot. Um, is there anything mm -hmm. else? Like we were talking about education is important. Um, any other points yeah. you want to touch on? I think, I think one of the things that I would like people to be aware of is, is resources are limited, right? I mean, that's, that's the old argument forever, but it's true. Like we, we resources are limited. And what I think most clinics are trying to do now is they're trying to triage patients. So for example, if you come into clinic and, you know, you are racked this month or, or this week, you know, by, by your condition and, and, and you're just at the end of your rope and you're just feeling really down and sad and things aren't going well for you. And, you know, people are going to pick that up 
I mean, unless you're pretty good at hiding it uh, and or if you, you know, but hopefully you don't hide it. Hopefully you talk about it. Hopefully you try to express it. And then people pick up on that and then they got to say, okay, this person needs assistance. So if they don't have the ability to provide some assistance there, what they'll do is the next best thing. I'm going to get you to this other clinic. I'm going to get you to this other place. They're, they're doing their best to move you to a place where you can get the help that they can't give. Yep. Now that might seem frustrating mm-hmm. from a patient's perspective because it's like you're, you're pushing me off or you're, you know, but in some sense, it's like the, the only thing they can do uh, for given the right clinic, like, you know, that they only have so much to work with. But my hope, my hope, and we talked about this a little earlier, my hope really is that, you know, clinics and and i do hold out hope that this in ontario at least we see more and more clinics i can't speak for other provinces uh, because i don't travel to, to them and work in them like this but i know that our family care teams and and family health units and and different types of organizations that are in our healthcare structure um, are providing psychological services more often now in-house so that's a big adjustment compared to where it used to be because now you could be in your GP's office where they have a health team and you could get referred to a psychologist inside of that health team. Mm-hmm. Now that's not for every health team. Um, you know, uh, there's going to be obviously some holes in that, but that's a big difference from where that was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So my hope is virtual work, um, you know, uh, health teams, uh, psychology, social work positions with people who have training and some expertise in these areas. I think, we need to be thinking about that. The other thing too, I mentioned triage, you know, maybe you don't need to go see the super duper psychotherapy clinic. Maybe you need to go to the moderate psychotherapy session, or maybe you just need to go to the education exposure and peer support session. So I think we need to think about like the work you're doing, um, you know, in, in your, in your material and, and with the happy pelvis, I think, you know, that work again is outreach. And I think people need education. They need outreach. They don't want to, I think the worst experience, and you let me know for many patients that I've been around is that they feel alone. Yep. yep. You know, that's where it all started. And I didn't want to feel alone. And then when I did find that there were others suffering the same way I was, I, my mind was blown and I wanted to um, mm-hmm. connect with them. And I did gain more hope and learn from them as well. So that is a big, big piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. And that's not dependent on the physicians. That's not dependent on the government mm-hmm. to support it. You know, it uh, would be nice if we had, to, but I think the idea is, you know, you have to start somewhere in, in making, a, making moves to improve things uh, because there's other things that are happening, but to move faster, sometimes we have to try to do you know what what you're doing the best that we can do and that's so important peer support is so important that um that has gotten me the farthest i feel um i was alone for years nobody i knew in my life had the same issues as me and once i found that same group it was night and day i was i had more confidence in myself um it's a it's a big it's a big um impact to have that support system in place so Um, like you said, it's, I just hope more and more, um, integrated hospitals have these systems in place. Like I personally went to the McMaster chronic Mm -hmm. of a DeGroote pain clinic there and I was in the chronic pelvic pain program and it was great because it had the education portion. It had the psychological portion. 
um, and it had the movement, the biological portion. So um, it was all um, a great system. So I, I do hope that these programs can be brought out across Ontario and multiple more of a lot more hospitals than there are right now and across mm-hmm. Canada. But like you said, I don't know too much about other provinces, but if we're struggling, I'm sure other provinces are as well. Yeah, it's it's a condition that is, um, you know, if we speak of chronic pain in general, that is highly prevalent, that is highly dis- dis- disabling. Um, and it's something that strikes people from all different types of ages, from adolescent uh, ages, you know, and children, uh, right straight through up. So yeah, no, it does not. And, you know, cause, cause disease does not discriminate. So I think we, we have to be mindful of that. And I, and I agree with you hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it and all your knowledge, um, and for sharing your study and getting more into the details and the different variables that come in that are involved, because as a patient reading a study like that, you just jump to the conclusion of, wow, 38%, like that's everybody, like I'm going to be the next, like your brain starts jumping to that. So, um, this is, was, has been incredibly helpful for myself and I'm sure for all the viewers. So thank you very much. Well, I thank you for the time to, uh, you know, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Tripp. You can find him on Twitter at Dean Tripp. And the study that was mentioned within this podcast is linked within the description. Thanks again, Dr. Tripp, for your time. And thank you, the listener, for listening all the way through. (laughs) I appreciate you so, so, so much. And I hope that you take some valuable information from this episode and apply it in one way or another to improve your quality of life while living with persistent pelvic pain. If you'd like to stay in touch, please make sure you subscribe to the Happy Pelvis newsletter, which I send directly to your inbox every month and download a free pelvic pain resource guide. You can find both of those links directly in the description. Well, that's it for today. I hope you all have a low pain rest of your day and I will talk to you on the next episode. Bye.